Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Our American Stories. Pistol Pete Maravich is widely regarded as one of the greatest players in basketball history. Also one of my personal hoops heroes. Maravich starred in college with the LSU Tigers while playing for his father, head coach Press Maravich. He's the all-time leading NCAA Division I scorer still with 3,667 points. And he averaged 44.2 points per game. All of his accomplishments were achieved before the adoption of the three-point shot and the shot clock, and despite being able to play varsity as a freshman under the NCAA rules. That's crazy. Maravich played 10 years in the NBA and is considered by many to be the best ball handler of all time. Just days before his death, on January 8, 1988, the 40-year-old Pistol Pete spoke to guests who gathered near the poolside of Jimmy Walker's house, an NBA all-star. We'd like to thank Vision Video for giving us special access to this rare bonus footage you are about to hear from their fantastic, uplifting movie, The Pistol, The Birth of a Legend. It's rated G. And we're telling this story because on this day in 1988, Pistol Pete Maravich died. Here's Pete Maravich looking back on his life just days before his death. I grew up in Clemson, South Carolina, and when I was four years old, the only thing I ever knew was basketball. By the time I was five years old, I was already playing organized basketball. My parents baited me into the game. They never forced me in. When I was seven years old, my dad came to me and he says, Pete, he says, I don't have any money to send you to college. You're going to have to get a scholarship. And if you get a scholarship, they'll pay your way. I only make $2,900 a year, and that's just not going to pay your way by the time you get there. And if you're good enough, Pete, you might even make it to the pro basketball. That's where the greatest players play. And there's so few. 
And if you get there, you might play on a team that wins a world championship. And you'll get a big diamond ring, Pete. So big, and it has on there world champions. And you'll be declared as the rest of the team one of the greatest at that particular time. Not only that, Pete, you'll be able to make money. They'll pay you for doing it. They'll pay you for playing something that you enjoy doing. Well, from that day, my I decided to commit my life totally to basketball. I was dedicated, possessed, and obsessed by it. I was so dedicated to it, I'll tell you some of the things I used to do. We lived two and a half miles outside of town in Clemson, South Carolina, and I used to get to basketball and I'd dribble in all the way. I would not accept a ride. I would dribble in with my right hand and dribble back home with my left hand five miles a day to the gym where I'd play eight to ten hours a day. When I finally got a bicycle when I was about 11 years old, 10, 11 years old, I learned to dribble the basketball on my bicycle all the way in. It made it a lot easier to get into town, too, and I got there quicker. <laughs> and I dribbled the ball by riding the bicycle. It got so bizarre that my dad came to me one day, and he says, Pete, come on, get your basketball, and let's go in the car. I said, where are we going? He says, I'll tell you when we get there. He went over, and he went on this specific highway, and there weren't many cars there, and he said, now look, I want you to... Get in the back seat, stick yourself out that back window there, and you start dribbling the ball. I'm going to drive at various speeds. I want to see if you can really control this thing. <laughs> and so uh, I did that, and he'd go 5, 10, 15 miles an hour, and 20 miles an hour. And of course, if you realize when you're trying to dribble a basketball out of a car or on a bicycle, you've got to throw it way out in front because he's going, <laughs> and it's coming back. It really comes back quick along with a lot of rocks. And uh, uh, to see the faces on the people that just happened to be driving by was uh, something in itself. It really was. I used to take the basketball to bed with me. I slept with the basketball until I was about 13 years old. I would get in bed, and I'd lay in the bed for one hour before I ever went to sleep, and I would repeat three things. Fingertip control, backspin, follow-through. Fingertip control, backspin, follow-through as I released it laying down. I was completely possessed by the game. I used to go around my house blindfolded, dribbling the ball, because I knew where everything was. Of course, to the dismay of my mother, sometimes I didn't, and I knew how to dribble the ball very fast out of the house. <laughs> I used to get the basketball, and, and I would dribble out in thunderstorms, lightning, everything else. You couldn't even see. I used to sneak out my back window. I'd go to this little spot where there was a mud hole. It was kind of a real hard mud, and I'd start dribbling the balls of mud, and everything splashed up on me and, and, and literally scared to death because of the thunder and lightning. Because I felt like if I could dribble in that mud and that water and everything else, control it, I could certainly do it on a court when somebody was guarding me. See, I was so committed to the game of basketball. In fact, from the time I was five years old till I was 17 years old, I played over 20,000 hours of basketball. In the March Reader's Digest, they had a story in there about television and how it affects young people's minds, or any person. It wasn't for or against television. It just says how it affects one's mind. And it said that the average person, by the time he's 20 years old, sees 20,000 hours of television. And I kind of paralleled that with my life. 20,000 hours of people watching television. I've spent 20,000 hours of hard sweat playing the game of basketball. When I was 12 years old, it was my first time I ever played in a regular game for junior varsity. I made the junior varsity when I was 12. and I was, At 13, I started on my high school team and played five years of high school basketball. I was uh, four foot nine and a half and... At that time, at 12, a reporter came up to me after the game, and he, I used to shoot the basketball from down here because I, I was too weak to shoot it from up here. And so I used to take the ball and take it and release it like this. And this reporter saw me, and he says, well, it looks like this guy has drawn a pistol. And he wrote that up, and that name has stick, stuck ever since. 
I just threw that in. I know that doesn't interest you at all. But I just wanted to say, say that. But he asked me after the game. He came up and interviewed me. That was my first interview I ever had, and I wish it had been my last. But he said, what are you going to do when you grow up, Pistol Pete? And I said, well, I'm going to play pro basketball. I'm going to be on a team that wins a world championship, get a diamond ring, and make a million dollars. And he literally fell off his chair with laughter. And I said, what are you laughing about? He said, a million dollars? They don't make that kind of money. This was in the 50s, and that, that, he was right. But uh, I just felt like at some point in my life, I would. My early church life was absolutely uh, probably zero. I was not raised in a Christian home. I was raised in, in a church home. I was raised with telling uh, Pete, you got to go to church. It's good to go to church. You, gotta, you need church. But when I got into church, I didn't ever hear anything. I never heard who Jesus Christ was when I was young because I didn't want to hear. See, I would sit in there and literally count ticks in my head. One, two, three, up to a minute. And that would go for an hour until I got out of there. I felt that if, some, if I was in this church for an hour, somebody in Philadelphia, L.A., Boston, or New York was playing basketball, and when it came down to get that scholarship, I would not get it. See? And I progressed on into uh, my teenage years. When I was 14 years old, it was the first time I ever had my first taste of alcohol. I had a beer at 14 years of age on the steps of the Methodist Church in Clemson, South Carolina. And I liked it. I really did like it. I liked it a lot. And for something I can tell you young people here tonight, it's this. Don't ever take that first drink and don't ever take that first drug because it'll never be your last and it'll lead to destruction. Because that's literally what almost happened in my own life. 98% of all people in jails today started with that first drink. 85% of over 500,000 people in correctional institutions today committed their crimes while under the influence of a mind-altering substance, drugs or alcohol. And all of a sudden, uh, I, this, this tremendous commitment that I had and everything else uh, kind of went down the drain. I didn't have it anymore, and, and uh, I'd played so much up until that time when I was 14, 15, going on to 16, 17, but all of a sudden I had time on the weekends to do other things. I saw the opposite sex for the first time in my life. You see, I was completely obsessed with basketball. I didn't do whatever other people did. My God was basketball. Their God was sex, alcohol, and whatever else. But I didn't see any of that until I was 14, and then I, my eyes opened up. And I enjoyed it, and I started getting into it. And then that toehold became a foothold, and the foothold became a stronghold, and that stronghold became an entire possession. I'm not scared to tell you here I was an alcoholic. I can't get people to write that up because I've never been to a clinic or anything. And all my friends drank just like I did, and they were alcoholics too. I enjoyed it a great deal because there's a great pleasure in sin. There's a lot of pleasure in it. Because if it wasn't, nobody would do it. When I was 18 years old, I was asked to go out to Lake Arrowhead out in uh, San Bernardino, California to a campus crusade for Christ. They asked me to come out there and do what you just saw here, what was called Showtime. They said, would you come out here and do your clinic, Pete? I said, well, sure, that'd be great. I'll bring one of my friends and we'll just come out there. California, I've never been there. That'd be fun. So we got in the car and I was just reaching my 18th birthday. Literally right before what was to be called the Pistol Pete era in Southeastern Conference basketball. And you're listening to Pistol Pete Maravich reflecting on his own life just days before his tragic death and a premature death at that. When we come back, more of this remarkable talk by Pistol Pete, who died on this day in 1888, here on Our American Stories. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. And we're back with Our American Stories, and we're going to continue with Pistol Pete Maravich, who died on this day in 1888, one of the all-time greatest players and an idol of mine. I can't tell you how many hours I spent watching him on television, the rare times he would come on, and then trying to copy every single thing he did. Let's go back to Pistol Pete. And so I, uh, I drove out there, and we partied all the way out, and we had fun, and we chased girls, and we just... We're in every every bar we could find and everything else. It took us three or four days to get out there. And, and as I drove up on this campus, I noticed that there were people sitting around praying and holding hands under trees and things of this nature. And I became very embarrassed. I didn't want any part of that. And I told my friend, I said, hey, we got to hurry and get out of here. I'm going to do this clinic and get out. These people are nuts. I mean, what are they smoking? And put that beer down. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to see him with this with this beer. So I checked into this place, and it was for three days. And I asked them, what am I supposed to do in my clinic? And they said, well, Pete, we're not sure yet, but if you would just bear with us. We're going to have you over here with this group. And I said, what do you mean? What am I going to do? He says, well, nothing. Just nothing to do. We'll just put you here. Would, you, would it be all right? And was, I said, okay. So I stayed with this group. My friend went with another group. And for three days, I finally heard who Jesus Christ was. I wasn't concerned about that. To me, it was just a story. It was a story. It was nice. That's nice. But after the end of three days there, there was no impact on my life. We went out to the beach. Bill Battle, who was an All-American football player, 
and with a bicep as large as my thigh. I said, we're going out to the beach. I'm taking this group with me. We're going to witness for Christ. And I said, what do you mean witness? Well, what, what is this, Bill? What do you mean witness? What are you talking about? He said, you just come along, Pete. We just want to, we just want to show you what we do here. So I went along with him, and, and we went out on, on the beaches of, uh, uh, out there, California beaches, and he, he uh, uh, goes up to the worst-looking group. This was back during the uh, 60s. This is the most revolutionary time, the rebellious time in our, in our, in our history, probably. It's led to so much of the rebellion today. And yet, he went up to the worst-looking group. Guy had tattoos all of his own. Hair down here, he was smoking a joint, drinking. There was about four or five of them. They were mean-looking, ugly. They didn't smell very good. Everything. And I stayed way in the background. But you know, the Lord has a way to use people. You see, he went up to this guy who was the meanest-looking guy right behind his head. He says, you know something? I would really like to share something with you folks. And this guy was literally going to turn around and punch him, I know. Because he turned around and he said, look, go right ahead. Because that bicep was right in his face. <laughs> and if anything impressed me, it was that. That did impress me. I said, wow, how God gets people's attention. It's amazing. So they witnessed, and I don't remember. I think some of them left right away. They said, oh, you Jesus freaks and all this kind of stuff. And I just kind of turned my head. I didn't want no part of it. At the end of three days, there was a, there was a thousand kids. And I was part of it. And Bill Bright, who's founder of the Campus Crusade, gave a message, much like Billy Graham, had an invitation for people to come receive Christ. And then he had them to come publicly and receive Him. Lo and behold, my friend was sitting next to me. He got up. I said, what, what are you doing? He says, Pete, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to tell you. I really don't know what to tell you. I've just received Christ into my life. I said, Kenny, hey man, Kenny, it's just something you ate or something, son. <laughs> and I grabbed him by the arm. I literally tried to steal away his salvation. I said, you, you don't go up there. You're embarrassing me. I remember saying that. And he pulled away and he went up there. He says, you don't understand. I said, no, I don't. And he walked up there. And I remember sitting there and saying, well, you're not going to get me, God. I'm going to play pro basketball, be in a world championship team, and make a million dollars. Boy, that's what I want in life. But you know, as I've reflected over that time, how many times I've cried and wished that I'd received Christ in my life then. You know why? Because God had sent me there for a purpose. Not to do a clinic. I never did one. Nobody even asked me. <laughs> but He put me there for one reason. Pete, come home now. Come home now because you're about to embark on a tremendous amount of personal tragedy and destruction in your life. And it doesn't have to be that way, but you're going to choose that way, and you don't have to. And I went on into college, and I did a lot of things in college. I've set, I've set something like around 50 basketball records from high school, college, and, and pro. The amount of trophies and awards and plaques that I have, the amount of, 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 of honorary mayorships and keys to cities that I have, except the time when I go to those cities and try to get the keys, they don't ever give them to me. It could literally, really, um, I'm, I'm not, could, could go around this entire pool area. Now, I have a trophy from 1972 in a box that's never been opened. It's six foot five inches and one, six foot five and one quarter inch tall. The exact height of me. I've never seen it. I've never opened the box. But they're all stored away. They, they don't really do anything for me. But I've had all those trophies, awards. I've had popularity. I've had fame. I had a tremendous amount of fame back in the 60s, tremendous amount of popularity. Everywhere we went, we played before over, right at a million people in college in three years, and that's pretty good. And I had all this adulation, and people wrote me. I got thousands of letters a week from fans. 
We idolize you, Pete Maravich. You're my idol. You're this. You're that. And I wasn't a role model at all. Not at all. I wasn't a role model for young people at all. None. Zero. And then, after my college, and I was all American, and I was uh, leading, I'm the leading scorer of all time in college basketball. It'll be broken someday. But I'm the leading scorer. I average over 44 points a game for a three-year period. I uh, uh, just hold uh, just all kind of records. Uh, my high school records are still held. I still hold the record for the All-Star game. I scored 47 points in the East-West High School All-Star game back in 1965. That's still there. It hasn't been broken, and some great players have come through there. And then I went into the pros, you see. And I had a lot of fun in college, a lot of fun. Too much fun. In fact, I was in nine accidents in college and walked away from every one of them. Not only that, one time I was coming home from putting on a clinic in Pennsylvania and I drove 700 miles and, it, and I stopped for the night. It was a halfway point. And I went down to a local pub, local little bar, sat in there and had about two beers. And a young lady came over to me. I said, how are you, sweetie? I said, I'm just fine. She said, you mind if I sit down here? I said, uh, well, uh, suit yourself so I was sitting there I wasn't there two minutes when a guy came up to me about six foot five about 270 pounds I said what are you doing with my girl I said I'm not doing anything with her sir I'm just sitting here I'm just having this cold beer here I don't want any trouble I didn't I, you know and he started pushing me he started hitting me in the shoulder and I grew up as a kid knowing that you never back down from anybody. I don't care what the odds. I wasn't going to back down. And I told him to get his hands off of me and all this. And before long, one thing led to another. And They said, y'all get out of here if you're going to fight. He said, yeah, come on. So I said, fine. So I got up and I went out quickly. And I made myself through the crowd and I got outside. And I st stayed behind the door. And I was really going to get this guy when he came out. But he never came. Of course, I didn't wait there about two minutes, and he didn't come. <laughs> you see? And so I said, I better get out of here, and I left, and I walked out to the parking lot. As I was walking in the back of the parking lot, out toward a, I saw a telephone booth where I was going to call a taxi to go to the Holiday Inn where I was staying. As I was walking out, I heard this guy came out, and he yelled to me. And little did I know that another guy had gone around the other side. And they both had blackjacks, which I didn't know. And the guy, the whole story is that the guy just literally, they just hit me from behind and beat me up pretty good. As I laid there on that parking lot that night, that girl came up, and I was all blood, and she took a 25 automatic pistol, and she put it in my mouth and cocked it. And she says, you're a dead man, Pistol Pete. How about that? And I remember laying there, and from the depths of my heart, I said, yeah, kill me. Because then I'll have peace. And you've been listening to Pistol Pete Maravich, who died on this day in 1888. And he gave this speech not long before his death, indeed just days. More of Pistol Pete Maravich's life story, his last story that he told in front of a large audience, here on Our American Stories. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. 
I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. A couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. continue with our American stories and with Pistol Pete Maravich's story, who died on this day in 1888. One of the last ones he told in his life, this one just days before he passed. But you know something? There's a God up there that overruled Satan that night too. He overruled him, and I know that. And I went into the pros and I signed the largest contract in the history of sports. Not basketball, sports. At the time, it made the Guinness Book of Records. It lasted 30 days. <laughs> they started pouring out a lot of big money back then. And I searched all through the 1970s for what meaning there was to life. I had to know the meaning. What was the meaning? And I got involved in all kinds of different things. I was involved in yoga and TM. I was involved very heavily in ufology, philosophy. I was involved in different religions, Hinduism uh, especially. I was involved in everything. But the thing about it is, none of it really satisfied me. They were just all brief interludes of satisfaction. Much like my life was brief interludes of just ego gratification, satisfaction. And all through that time, in fact, in 1976, I decided I was going to live to be 150 years old. And I got very heavily into nutrition. Because I was into Hinduism and I was into the karma and all these other types of situations. And I became a vegetarian and then a fruitarian and a macrobiotic and a mini-dose and a maxi-dose on vitamins. And I fasted 25 days and I sat in all kinds of different positions. And I was searching for life, friends. I was really searching for life because my life had no meaning at all. My life had absolutely no meaning at all. And at each one of these stops, each one of these stops, I had to have something else. 
It just didn't satisfy me. In 1980, I quit basketball. I just quit. I walked away from it because of immaturity and because of the fact that I just got tired of it all. I just got tired of it. I got tired of my life. And I became a recluse for about two years. I sat in my home. We had our first son, Jason. He was only one and a half years old. And I was sat there for hours at a time trying to teach him seven and eight-year-old puzzles because I, want, I wanted my son, Jason, to have what I didn't. I wanted him to have a high intellect. See? I wanted him to be an intelligent person. I wanted him to be able to go to the right parties and say the right things. I thought that was important. I really thought that was important. And so my wife used to come to me and she says, Pete, you really need to go see someone because you're really flipping out. I said, what do you mean? She says, you haven't left this house in two weeks. I said, yeah, I have. I, 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 you know, I'd go out to the garage and stuff. <laughs> but I was really lost. And in 1982, I went to bed one night. It was like any other night. Pete Maravich had all the material things you could want. I used to carry around $5,000 in my pocket in cash in 20s. <laughs> I never carried any change. But I had all that stuff, and none of it ever satisfied me. Not the money, not the wealth, not the success. And I laid there in bed, and I couldn't sleep. I didn't understand it. And all of a sudden, everything started coming up in my life. All the sin, every sin I'd ever committed, and I've committed many, let me tell you, many sins in my life. And there's nothing hidden. And I'm not airing all my dirty laundry here. I'm not trying to. I don't want to give Satan any credit. But I can tell you this. It all came up. And it also came up when I was 18, when I could have received Christ. And it was 5.30 in the morning now. And I laid there crying with two pillows back up in my back with an unsaved wife next to me. And I was sitting there crying. And I said, God, I've punched you, I've kicked you, I've cursed you, I've used your name in vain, I've mocked you, I've embarrassed you, I've done all those things. And yet, do you really, I mean, will you really forgive me the things that I've done? And I was about to get over on the side of my bed. And what happened to me doesn't happen to everybody. And what happened to me happened to me. And that's why I'm talking out of my shoes. Many people don't believe it. Many theologians don't believe it. Many, people, many theologians don't believe in God. God spoke to me audibly right there in the room. He said, be strong and lift thine own heart. Literally audibly. I looked around the room. I was in total shock. I'd never heard anything like that before. And I was so shocked that I reached over and I woke my wife, just shaking her like crazy. I said, Jackie, did you, Jackie, did you hear what the Lord said to me? Did you hear that? And you must understand, Jackie had seen me go through all kinds of trips in my life. And she just kind of looked at me in a dark haze that it was at 5.30 in the morning and said, Pete, you really have gone nuts, haven't you? And she just went back to sleep. You know, I was sitting there and all of a sudden, about a year and a half ago, uh, my wife and I went through a terrible tragedy. Uh, I was restoring an old Victorian home, and I'd just gotten back from China. Some friends came over, and we were showing them the house. Uh, we'd gone upstairs with them, and there was no banister, so we told our kids to you know, stay away from the stairs. It's going to be here a second. And we were showing them. And as careful as we are with our children, uh, I'd forgotten that there, 
didn't even really think about it. I built in a little closet in the upstairs room. And in that closet was an air conditioning vent, an old one, that had been stuffed up with insulation. And uh, uh, it really happened very quickly. Uh, they both kind of ran in there. We didn't see them. And all of a sudden, it was like that. My wife heard a, a very loud thump. And when she uh, went back there, uh, Joshua, my little two-year-old at the time, wasn't there. Uh, I just kind of knew what happened, and I dashed down the floor, and I went in there, and I saw my little son lying there in a, in a pool of blood. He had landed, and impact had hit him directly in the eye is where he hit on this part of his head. He was in a semi-conscious state. I've taken CPR in the past, and my wife never did see him. I'm glad she didn't because it's something I'll, I'll live with all my life. Well, anyway, I picked him up, and he was just a lifeless little body. His heartbeat was so faint that uh, uh, I didn't know whether he was going to make it or not. But I rushed him to the hospital, and we, I got him there, and there wasn't even any doctors there at this particular hospital. The, the guy that was supposed to be there was off. He was in lunch or something like that. And it just so happened I had a Christian painter there and a Christian uh, carpenter, and they started praying. They found a doctor and he came in and they checked him out and I was in prayer in the other room. My wife was uh, literally away with, uh, just had lost it completely and we didn't know what was going to happen to Joshua. About 10 minutes later, the doctor came out. He happened to be an eye surgeon and he says, Pete, uh, Joshua's going to make it. And I said, thank God for that. I said, that's just great. He says, but uh, we've looked in his eye just very quickly and it looks like all the muscles of his eyes have been of his eyes been torn away so I'm going back in there and check him out and, and you just uh, waiting here I said fine I just went back in prayer and my prayer wasn't that uh, Josh be healed my prayer was according to God's plan in Joshua's life that it just be worked out and so about 15 minutes later the doctor came back to me and he says Pete he says, I really can't uh, believe what happened. And I said, what's that, doctor? He says, we look in Joshua's eye just now, and it's as clear as a bell. Uh, there's no contusions. There's no, uh, uh, there's no broken bones. His neck is, there's nothing. I mean, it's just absolutely clear. Plus the fact uh, he's just going to be perfect. There's nothing wrong with him uh, except this massive swelling that has taken place. Well, that was just a little miracle in my life. And as I thought about this, I started reflecting back on my own life. And it's been that way in my life, hundreds upon hundreds of times, that I've literally reflected back at the times that I really shouldn't be here. But I am here, and I'm here for one purpose. Jesus Christ changed my life. Money didn't do it. Women didn't do it. Friends didn't do it. Pastors didn't do it. Wealth didn't do it. Success, president of being a company, owning your own business, having your own boat. I don't have much time left. And the time that I have, I'm giving to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've been listening to Pistol Pete Maravich in one of the last talks he ever gave here on this earth. He suffered a heart attack and he died on Tuesday, January 8, 1988 after playing a pickup basketball game at a Pasadena, California church. He was only 40. Quote, 
We were on a break and he walked up to me, said Focus on the Family's James Dobson. I asked him how he was feeling. He said, I feel great. He took one step and fell. And Dobson continued, quote, I tried to do what I could, but he'd had a seizure. That was easy to see. He was jaundiced and his eyes rolled back in his head. His body was rigid. It was clear he was leaving. I called out to him, asked him not to go, but it was much too late. Pete Maravich died in Dr. Dobson's arms. The story of Pete Maravich in his own words, who died on this day in 1988, here on Our American Stories. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.